Sonny Liston, former heavyweight champion of the boxing world, was found dead at his home shortly after New Year's in 1971. The official cause of death? Natural causes. But it seems like no one really believes that conclusion. So what really happened to Sonny Liston? Welcome, welcome, welcome. It's another episode of the KMH Podcast starring your buddy Brad. Before we get into our story, I've got a fair amount of housekeeping, so I'm going to try to jump through this as quickly as I can. First, don't forget, join our private group on Facebook so you can be entered to win an Amazon gift card you have until June 20th. Remember, don't just like the page, join the group. If if you join, you'll get to see a special set of goals that I'm not making public, kind of like a Kickstarter stretch goals, but I'll let one slip. There's a chance that if we give enough folks to join the group, I will have my adorable joke-telling son host his own bonus episode. So start recruiting your friends so you can hear that madness. Speaking of, I'm going to give a quick shout-out to those who have already joined the group. That would be Roderick, Jana, Misty, Amber, Michael, Heather, Laura, Kay, Justin, Christy, Roselli, Debbie, Allison, Michael II, Amy, Matt, Yelly, Empe, and Nayla. Thank you all for joining. I also feel like we need to do another reviewer spotlight. This week we're going to focus on a review from Mine Nope which reads, I listen to Brad's podcast every week and have them set now to automatically download so I never miss an episode. These are not just interesting, but some are slightly horrifying. Brad's voice is perfect for keeping your mind ready for whatever comes next. His weekly endings are almost, not quite, the best part of each episode. Keep it up. Love it. Well, I would argue with that one if I could. Really appreciate the kind words from MindNope and for taking the time to leave a review. I'll get a copy of that review posted in our Facebook group and on Instagram for everybody to check out. Also, to pat all of us on the back, in case you didn't see, our little podcast ranked in the top 100 on Chartable last week in both the United States and the world for true crime podcasts. That Chartable is basically the Nielsen rating service for podcasts. So that's kind of freaking amazing that we were able to rank in the top 100 in the world. This can only happen if you have a podcast with amazing listeners. So guess what? Y'all are all amazing. Yay. Congrats. And with that, I'll go into my call for action, as they say in the biz. Go leave us a rating and a review if you haven't already. Please, please, please share this awesome rising star of a podcast with everybody you know. And then you and your friends can be all hipsters cool and say, oh, yeah, I listened to the KMH podcast way before they became popular. And also subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. Okay, that, that covers all the mess I need to talk about. 
So let's get into the show. Okay, Sonny Liston is a name you may recognize. He was, in fact, the heavyweight champion for a time when boxing was still one of the world's major sports. You've probably seen a picture of him. Not the most flattering one, but he's the guy laying on his back in what is arguably the most famous picture of Muhammad Ali ever, who is yelling at Liston to get back on his feet. While he's never thought of in the same circles as the greats like Ali or Foreman or Frazier of that era, Liston was definitely a man to be feared. This ability to inspire fear was acquired through an extremely difficult childhood. He was the 24th of 25 kids. Yes, 24th out of 25. That was born to a family supported only by a sharecropper in rural Arkansas sometime in the 1930s. Since there is no requirement for a birth certificate to be issued, we really never know how old Liston is, and that's kind of an issue that followed him throughout most of his career. Uh, His dad would constantly say, if you're old enough to eat at the table, you're old enough to work for your food. And work Liston did. His dad was a bit of a mean dude who demanded his children's respect. While hard work and hunger were constant clouds in Liston's sky, his father's violent outbursts were the thunderstorms that he tried to hide from. Liston wore the scars of his father's violence on his back until the day he died. Being young, uneducated, illiterate, hungry, often shoeless, and black while living in the South was a tremendously difficult hand for uh, Linston to be dealt. We grew up like heathens, he said during an interview once. He was effectively forbidden from gaining honest employment to help his help his family so naturally he felt like he was forced to be drawn to a life of crime he was troublesome enough that it was rumored local police kept a picture of listen taped to their sun visors in one of his early and more notable incidents with police he started a fight with a cop beat the man down then lifted and threw the poor officer into a nearby alley and walked away smiling, wearing the cop's hat. His first serious brush with the law occurred when he was around 22. He was sent to the Missouri State Penitentiary for armed robbery. In some ways, being incarcerated was actually a blessing for Liston. He received three meals a day, he didn't have to worry about money or clothing, and he had ample free time. It was while he was serving his five years that Father Alio Stevens, a Catholic priest who ran the prison gym, noticed Linston's fighting skills and began training him to become a professional. Father Stevens told Sports Illustrated that Linston had powerful arms, big shoulders, and was knocking everybody out in the gym. Father Stevens was also amazed at how large Linston's hands were. They are still the largest ever recorded for a heavyweight champ. Linston was paroled after only two years, and in 1953 became a professional boxer. Unfortunately, he had lots of problems getting the fights he needed to make a name for himself. Frankly, he was just 
too big and mean looking for most of the other boxers to agree to fight him. So he needed a little professional help, and that help came in the form of the mafia. Once the mob began managing lists in his career took off. Now, understand that during the 50s and 60s, the mob ran boxing. This isn't some dirty little secret. It's just a known fact. Big matches were set up, but would not actually be fought unless the appropriate powers that be in the mafia signed off on the match. It really wasn't until the late 60s that legitimate businessmen began asserting their influence in the sport and slowly choked out the mob influence. But regardless, Liston was a dream for the mob. His power was frightening. One writer said Liston didn't merely defeat his opponents. He, quote, breaks them down, shames them, haunts them, leaves them flinching from his punches, even in their dreams. Even Muhammad Ali would later say that Liston was the scariest man he ever had to fight. Yet America did not love Liston, or frankly even like him. The New York Times described him as surly, arrogant, rude, mean, and frightening. Newspapers used thinly veiled racial terms in describing him. When he eventually received his chance to fight for the heavyweight championship against Floyd Patterson, even President Kennedy said publicly that Patterson should find an opponent with, quote, better character. When Liston finally got his chance to fight Patterson for the title in 1962, Liston demolished the man in two minutes. The world had the most hated man in boxing as their champion. And understand this hatred wasn't just from the white community. When Liston returned home to Philadelphia, he had prepared a speech to give to the expected crowd. Yet when he stepped off the plane, he was greeted by no one. The powers that be in the civil rights movement did not want Liston as the face of the black community since he was illiterate, a felon, and working for the mob. That's right. Not only was Liston being managed by the mob, he was actively working for them. He actually, during one point in his career, was officially a registered member of a cement workers union. So he had an excuse to hang around John Vitale a former boss of the St. Louis crime family. He was a bodyguard for the mob, chauffeur, and general leg breaker. Linson was unquestionably the most feared man in boxing until his first bout with Muhammad Ali in 1964. Though Linson was the overwhelming favorite, the young Ali, and then still known as Cassius Clay, moved too quickly for Linston to really deliver much punishment. There were rumors that Linston, whose last three fights had lasted a total of six minutes, wasn't really prepared to battle Ali for more than a couple rounds. There are also concerns that Linston's shoulders were significantly injured, and one may have seized up on him during the fight. Whatever the reason behind the decision, Linston did not answer the bell for the seventh round and Ali became the new heavyweight champ by technical lockout. Winston's fearsome persona was completely destroyed after his rematch against Ali a year later. The fight lasted all of 104 seconds, ending in a knockout victory for Ali. However, 
Many claim Winston took a dive and was felled by a phantom punch. Even Ali stood over Linston, yelling for him to get back on his feet and that no one would believe that punch would knock out Linston. Though Linston would end his boxing career with 50 victories and 39 of those wins by knockout, with only four losses, he was never the same boxer after the second Ali fight. He was accused throughout the public of being nothing more than a mafia stooge. Though he never officially retired, and he actually won 14 fights in a row after the second Ali match, his career never gained much traction again. After that second Ali fight, Linston moved to Las Vegas and unfortunately reverted to his old form. He was virtually broke as the mafia managers had skimmed as much money as possible from Liston, taking full advantage of his lack of education. So while he was able to earn some money by making appearances at casinos and other events, at night he allegedly worked for loan sharks and drug dealers as their muscle. Now during this time, Las Vegas was a deeply segregated town. Police were known to be very aggressive in policing the white parts of the city, and it wasn't unheard of for black tourists to be arrested merely for taking pictures on the strip. The charge they would receive, NOS, which translated nicely meant people of color on the strip. There were few legitimate opportunities for African-American residents. Linson, however, lived on the white side of town in a neighborhood that other celebrities and casino executives resided in and was accepted in that community. Yet still, he spent many nights on the black side of town. He drove a very flashy pink Cadillac through the ghetto, and it was well known that if he wanted to score some cocaine, Sonny would have it, $50 a pop. During one of his nightly visits to the ghetto, Liston was hanging out with a friend by the name of Earl Cage and several others. Cage was a known cocaine dealer and... Oddly, and I'm serious in this, he was also a beautician. Police raided Cage's place that very night and arrested everyone, except Linston. Allegedly, Cage believed Liston had set him up and held an extremely strong grudge against Liston. Liston later had an encounter with another old acquaintance, Mo Dalitz, who was a major mob figure in Las Vegas. During the confrontation, Liston cocked his fist back as if he was planning to take a swing at Dalitz. Now, it's angrily responded by saying that if Liston took a swing at him, he better kill him because he would have him killed within 24 hours. Liston was also making enemies with his friends in the mob. Allegedly, during one of his last fights, he refused to take a dive as ordered. As Muhammad Ali was preparing to fight Joe Frazier, In what was then arguably the biggest fight in boxing history, Liston began talking. He claimed that the mob had ruined his career. Now he was in debt because of them and that he had been promised money from the Ali's camp for taking the dive in their rematch. This apparently even caught the attention of the Nation of Islam and greatly angered some of their membership, as you probably know Ali was a member of the Nation of Islam. 
In his typical brash style, though, Liston was fearless in fighting his fights. Now, one point, at this time in boxing, it was not unheard of that if you fought a major opponent, part of the deal would be you would get a percentage of their purse for the rest of their career. That's why Liston was arguing that Ali's camp owed him money because he expected to make a fortune off of the Ali Frazier fight. And he was being told that he had no such deal in place. So he was extremely angry because his mob managers had promised him that. And for all we know, he had that in writing. But since he lacked any formal education... He really wouldn't be able to fully appreciate the contracts, and the mob could just lie to him. So after all these events occurred, we have this little hurricane brewing. Liston was found dead by his wife, Geraldine, at their Las Vegas home on January 5th, 1971. Geraldine found her husband after returning from a two-week trip to visit her mother and other family for Christmas. The doors to the house were unlocked when she arrived, and she found her husband in their bedroom laying at the foot of their bed, only in his underwear, with dried blood streaking from his nose. Police made the quick determination that Liston had died from a heroin overdose based on finding needle marks on his arm, heroin in the house, and because he was known as a heroin addict, according to cops. Okay, we spent a long time discussing Liston's life, and that's because it seems relevant to understanding the mystery surrounding his death. There are far too many actors in this play who may have had a motive to kill the former heavyweight champ, and the police's conclusion seems very weak. Apparently, when they first arrived on the scene, police thought that Liston had passed out and cracked his head on a bench, which was broken and near his body. However, once the police noticed the needle marks and found a balloon of heroin in his kitchen, they changed their story. Forensic testing was inconclusive because of the advanced state of decay of Liston's body, but there was some evidence that there was heroin in his system at the time of his death. The sum tests revealed trace amounts of codeine and or morphine which is common when the body breaks down heroin. However, Liston was also taking painkillers at this time, as he had recently been involved in a pretty serious car accident. I couldn't find anything about the painkillers, and if they would be the sort to leave these trace findings that the forensic testing found. Now, his body was also allegedly too decomposed to determine if Liston had been attacked in any way. But it's unclear how much of the investigation went into this theory once the OD angle was adopted by the police. The coroner ultimately ruled that he died from natural causes, lung congestion, and heart failure. The coroner's conclusion, coupled with the police's theory meant that no homicide investigation ever occurred. Now, another problem with the overdose theory 
is that there was, despite the fact that there was heroin in his house, there was no drug paraphernalia, i.e., there's no needles. And speaking of needles, many people claim that Liston had an intense fear of needles and absolutely refused to ever take a shot. And this story came from some of his trainers. In fact, when he was trying to rebuild his career, I believe it was in New Jersey, he was being cleared to fight, but to do so, he had to give a blood test. And while most of us would simply take the blood test so we could get our career back on track, Liston actually had to think about it for a couple of days because he was so terrified of needles. When he had his car accident, uh, it was so bad that the engine ended up in his front seat and he was in the hospital for several days. When his friends checked on him once he was released, they asked how he was doing and he said it was all right, but the worst part for him was getting the anesthesia via needle. So it sounds like there's some truth to the idea that he was terrified of needles. Now, one could argue in counter of that, Geraldine, when she got home, did not immediately call the police. In fact, she waited three hours to call the police. And before the police arrived at the scene, she had both Liston's personal physician come by the house and their family attorney. It is entirely possible that Geraldine tried to clean up the scene of as much paraphernalia as possible in an effort to keep her husband from suffering any sort of lasting embarrassment. Now, also, there were reports from the media during his first fight with Ali that Liston, again, was having a problem with his shoulder and was regularly receiving cortisone shots to deal with the shoulder pain. So if that's true, it really undermines the idea that he was scared of needles. For what it's worth, I looked and tried to find some information to support the police's assertion that Liston was a known heroin addict. The man loved to drink, and the man was known to do cocaine, but I couldn't find any evidence from any of my sources that he was into heroin. So I think that was just a broad assertion the cops made. Now, apparently, too, those in the know said it was common knowledge in the community that a hit was being planned for Liston. It was really more of a question of who was going to get to him first. Uh, we'll, we'll kind of bounce through some of the figures that wanted him dead real quick. Now, remember Cage, the beautician slash cocaine dealer? He wanted Liston dead because he blamed the raid on his house on Liston since he was the only one not arrested. Common sense would say he's the snitch if he's the only one of us that didn't go to jail. And Cage was known for being a mean, nasty dude who held a grudge and did not like snitches. Uh, there were plenty of rumors that he was actively looking for someone to do the job about the time Liston died. There are also lots of unidentified figures within the mob who really would have wanted Liston dead because he was no longer a good investment and was becoming a liability very quickly. 
We really don't know how much Liston knew about mob operations, but we did know that he was hanging out as the chauffeur and bodyguard for one of the mob bosses. Further, he was actively disrespecting the mob with the accusations they ruined his career. Don't forget how Mo Diaz, the big mob guy in Las Vegas, was treated by Liston. There also happened to be a casino executive by the name of Ash Resnick that you see pop up a lot in connection with Liston. The FBI long believed that Ash was kind of a fixer between the casino world and the mafia world when it came to problems within the sport of boxing. And he may have been called upon to solve the problem of Sonny running his mouth. Now, there's an article that's in the show notes that claims a man by the name of Dale Klein, a.k.a. James John Warjack, was the man who killed Liston. Greg Swarm is his son, and he claims that he has evidence that such went down. Apparently, this story was reduced to a movie script and is currently with a producer in Los Angeles. Now, the producer, when Swain went to talk to him and went to see the script, told him, look, just let this be. You're digging too deep and you're going to cause yourself too much negative attention. This is going to put your life at risk. Just let it go. Now, he says... In his story, he claims his dad would never talk about the work he did, but one night he got his dad good and drunk, and he confessed to killing Linson with heroin, and he also confessed to several other murders that he pulled off for the mob. There's also the DEA, or as they were known back then, the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs. They were supposedly targeting the group that was supplying Linson with drugs, and we're about to take him down. But the bust never occurred. Coincidentally, the BNDD itself was investigated by the CIA in 1971 for widespread corruption among its agents. There's no direct evidence I could find linking the BNDD to Liston's death, but this coincidence just seems like it's worth mentioning. There were also plenty of officers in the Las Vegas PD as well as in the sheriff's office who had, let's say, poor reputations and may be willing to do certain things that could get other people arrested in exchange for a little bit of cash. Now, there's an author and former ESPN reporter named Sean Assail who wrote the book The Murder of Sonny Liston. And it's a pretty decent book. I would check it out if you're interested in this. It basically follows Liston during the last year of his life, as best this dude could dig up. He claims, like we discussed earlier, that it was just common knowledge that Liston was about to be taken out. Further, everybody who doesn't wear a badge in this story believes that the heroin was planted by the police. Asayo received some information including police records indicating that Larry Gandy, a former Las Vegas police officer, had been hired to kill Liston. 
The accusation against Gandhi came from an unidentified informant who went to the police and shortly thereafter was found to have committed suicide through carbon monoxide poisoning in his garage shortly thereafter, though a sale hints that it's kind of thought of that the informant was not the one who turned the key to his car, if you catch my drift. Now, Asael actually found Gandhi, and Gandhi agreed to speak to him. Gandhi absolutely denied being hired to kill Liston and said the official report was garbage. But he admitted that he was no angel, and he committed many crimes both in uniform and out of uniform. These were typically involving stealing drugs from the evidence room to sell, and he and his partner were known to go on these wild benders. They would check out an undercover car from the department and not be seen for a week. And they'd come back high on cocaine and LSD, having spent, you know, the previous seven days locked up in a hotel room with some uh, prostitutes. So it's not like this guy is the model for police officers. Now... While Gandhi denied being the one to kill Liston, he was pretty insistent that Cage, the beautician, was the one who did it. He again said that Cage was, was just a mean dude with a nasty temper who refused to allow snitches to get away with being snitches. Now, there is a two-year gap between Liston's death and the raid at Cage's house slash beautician shop, whatever you want to call it. But Gandhi explained this gap by saying this dude was smart enough to know that if he came out swinging, he would be the first suspect. And so he purposefully waited some time before he took down Liston. A couple interesting little bits that a sale turned up during his research all the records held by local law enforcement and the FBI concerning Linson's death do not exist anymore. The FBI admitted to destroying their file in 1990. The district attorney, the sheriff's office, and the Las Vegas PD all did a search, basically said all the records were consolidated into one file, which was supposed to be photographed for microfilm, and either that was never done properly or the picture didn't turn out or some such event. I want to say nonsense, but I'm trying to be still be objective. So there are no records concerning Liston's death whatsoever in the state of Nevada. He also found that the Las Vegas Sun-Times reported that the last person to see Liston alive was an undercover narcotics agent. But Asael could not identify this person, despite interviewing dozens upon dozens of former police officers. The last little intriguing bit of info that Asael leaves us with is that the funeral home director who prepared Liston's body said Liston had a finger-sized hole in the back of his head. Now remember... No homicide investigation was ever done. That very well could have been a bullet hole. It also very well could have been an accidental puncture wound from when the coroner's office was moving the body 
And it was in such a state of decay that it sounds like it would be easy to accidentally push too hard and get your finger up in some of the gooey bits of Liston. <laughs> that sounds horrible, doesn't it? Okay, my thoughts. Um, very, very clear that Liston had lots of enemies, and several of them were very powerful. Since the police didn't do much of an investigation, there really isn't a lot of evidence to support their overdose theory or their natural death theory. I mean, all we've got for the OD theory are some needle marks and some heroin in the house. We don't even have a needle or a history of that. To me, we would need a little bit more evidence to support that. If it had been an overdose, you would expect the police to be out there shaking down local drug dealers, working with the federal agents that were trying to bust the ring that Liston was a part of. But because he was found to have died of natural causes, none of that happened. Now, remember, Liston was in a car accident and hospitalized shortly before this. A lieutenant in the Las Vegas PD found this very suspicious and kind of went off the record to speak to Liston's doctor and showed him the reports they had and whatnot. And Liston's doctor was apparently adamant that he was in great shape and it would take some third-party sort of action to have killed him at that point in his life, meaning he wouldn't suddenly have a heart attack and keel over. He wouldn't suddenly have fluid build up in his lungs. It would take something more than that. As you've probably guessed, I fall into the Sonny was murdered camp because it seems like anyone who has any knowledge on the subject who talks about it and isn't a cop has the attitude of, oh yeah, Sonny, yeah, he was going down. It's just a matter of time. Just see who got to him first. I'm thinking it was a mob hit too because... The whole event is just too professional looking to be a revenge killing. If it was Cage, I can't imagine he would take the time to do the whole heroin thing and all that. I think he'd just shoot Sonny and have him killed. And he'd probably want to leave that message in the community. Now, we could say the same thing about a mob hit, too. We always think of hits being a very bloody, violent, and public event so that everybody knows who did it and you learn not to mess with the mob. Yet that's not how things were in Las Vegas during this time. According to the director of the Mob Museum that resides in Las Vegas, it actually was becoming popular for mob hits to take the form of drug overdoses because... They didn't want the heat coming down on them. And you had so many federal agents worming their way through Las Vegas, looking for ways to shut down the mob, to shut down all the drug trafficking, to stop all the sports fixing and whatnot, that they wanted to remain in the shadows. Now, having said all that, I think Sonny brought his death upon himself. 
Um, you know, he shouldn't have been poking at the hornet's nest. Certainly they screwed him. They took full advantage of him being a dumb black kid with a powerful jab and a nasty attitude and exploited the mess out of him. But Liston really was not in a position to fire her back. Any threats to expose mob secrets? Well, we saw how that goes in the Chuck Morgan case a couple of episodes ago. And that dude was far more valuable to the mafia than Liston ever was. All right, so if I had to build a theory from the evidence that we have available to us, here's my best guess. Liston was known for frequenting watering holes in the ghetto part of Las Vegas. He was also known to be quite the womanizer and always liked having one, two, three, four showgirls on his arms when he went out. So, I don't think it's unreasonable to expect that he goes out one night to one of his favorite bars, starts drinking, and one of the girl on his arms is actually a mob plant. She takes the opportunity while he's pounding back whiskey to spike his drink, maybe with a roofie, something like that. Considering his history and considering how often he gets drunk, it wouldn't have been odd to see Liston in some sort of stupor, even to the point that he passes out. Should that happen, then a friend would have helped him to his car and driven him home. Then you can toss the big man in his bed, inject him a few times with a massive dose of heroin to suggest a history of drug use, then leave, making sure, of course, to leave behind some drugs so there's some evidence to throw off the cops. Like I've said before, give the cops a reason to make up their minds early on and you can really muck up an investigation. Even if Liston was able to come to, the combination of the drugs in the system likely would have left him in too much of a stupor to do anything other than maybe stumble around a bit. If it was a roofie and that was mixed with heroin, those two drugs react by kind of intensifying each other and will extend the duration of the effects of the high from the heroin. And we have to factor into all this that nobody really knew exactly how old Liston was. So it's possible this professional boxer was in his 50s when this occurred, and not a normal 50s. This was a man who's in his 50s who had been punched in the face for several decades as a career. Even if he's in excellent health, as his doctor claimed, that takes a toll on a man's body. And we also don't know, too, based on how decomposed Liston's body was when he was found, he could have suffered some sort of beating, too, in addition to all this. And it really wouldn't have been possible to figure out what happened unless bones were broken or something severe like that. It's worth noting, too, that the coroner who determined he died of natural causes was really the interim coroner and had no real experience performing medical exams like this. So his diagnosis really should be taken with a grain of salt. I'm also very curious what Geraldine was about. 
I don't know what happened in those three hours between finding her husband and calling the cops. Since the lawyer was there, I'm guessing that since the mob provided everything for Liston during his life, this lawyer may have had some mob connections. You give a lawyer three hours to clean up a crime scene, he can do a lot of damage. The lawyer, I suspect, if he's in bed with the mob, receives instructions from the mob on what is to be left there and what is not to be left there. I mean, is that unethical? Of course, but if you're going to throw your lot in with the mob, ethics are really of a minor concern. I really don't believe that if Geraldine was cleaning up the scene to make sure her husband wasn't embarrassed, that she would have missed the heroin full, or I'm sorry, the balloon full of heroin. So to me, that suggests either the lawyer told her to leave it there, but what I believe is more so the police planted it when they got there. Um, if you look into this, Geraldine had a very hostile attitude towards cops. She would not cooperate in their investigation in any way. And I think we can, I, I don't think it's unfair to suggest that her hostility stemmed from the fact that they could have made the crime scene or the death scene look worse than it really was. And I really don't doubt that it'd be that hard for the mob to have several dozen cops in their pocket to pull something like this off. So that's just my theory. I can't tell you who actually murdered Sonny. There's just too many rogues to pick from. And this was a time when Vegas was just oozing with corruption from its very pores. So there's really such a small chance that we would ever learn the full truth. But that's my best guess. Well, I've had this case on my docket since before I started the podcast because I've always thought that there were way too many unanswered questions in this case. And I think there are scant few people left alive who could ever answer those questions, unfortunately. I've always felt bad for Liston. He was born into a terrible situation. He was forced to survive with the few skills he had. When he finally found something he was really good at, he was taken advantage of by some bad people, and all that money he made never really ended up in his pocket. During his last few years of life, when he became less valuable, he didn't have the support system he had in place when the mob was doing everything they could to make sure he was still a good investment for them. It's unfortunate, but Liston's legacy really in boxing history is that he was the last mob-controlled heavyweight champ. And that's really sad. If you look into his life, he doesn't seem to be the bad dude that he's always painted as. He loved kids. He helped out poor people. He did a lot of good things for the, the world. Now, granted, that does not offset the fact that he spent his final years pumping poison into the African-American community and lots of local Las Vegas leaders in the NCAA and other such um, organizations 
had a really negative opinion of Sonny because they felt like he did little to nothing to help their plight. Well, let's pep this up a bit with a palate cleanser, shall we? Here's this week's offering. And it took us a long time to come up with this this joke, I have to say. Why does a seagull fly over the sea? Because if the seagull flew over the bay, it would be called a bagel. Yeah, we, we liked that one when we found it, so that's our palate cleanser for this week. As I always say in closing, please remember to keep rating, reviewing, and subscribing, and listening. That's important, too. Again, I'd love to have all of y'all join our private group on Facebook. The address to find it is simple, facebook.com slash group slash KMH podcast. Again, facebook.com slash group slash KMH podcast. Or just search for it, too, you know. Um, And there's only two quick little questions you have to answer to gain membership. All of y'all can do it. It'll take 30 seconds. And uh, don't forget our Instagram, KMH Podcast, or excuse me, KMH.podcast is our Instagram handle. Go there. We post some neat stuff there, especially on Fridays. And we finally got our website up. You can go check it out if you just want to, but I don't think there's a lot of interest there, KMHpodcast.com. But again, like us, review us, leave an excellent rating. Let's let's keep the shooting star rising higher and higher. Again, and I really appreciate y'all for being such great listeners. This this can only be done because of y'all. All right, I'm done rambling. I will catch all of y'all later, future dudes. Be good. Brad out. Thank you for listening to Kellen Missing Hidden. Make sure to rate, subscribe, and share. Questions? Email us at info at kmhpodcast.com.